Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, Gunther Witsony. Uh, he's an author, amongst many things, of biocommunication and natural genome editing, viruses, essential agents of life. He's a philosopher. He specializes in the philosophy of science, uh, philosophy of language and communication, and philosophy of biology. And in the late 1980s, he proposed the concept of life as a communicative structure, cells, tissues, organs, and organisms organize and coordinate themselves through communication processes. So definitely very avant-garde thinking. I like it. Good there. Thanks for coming. How are you doing? Oh, fine. You? Good, good. Yeah. Well, um, before we begin on the questions themselves, you know, you've been thinking about biological communication and perhaps what is life itself for a long time, you know, a very long time. What What is some of the newest thinking or breakthroughs that you have? I'd like to just ask you briefly about that and then get into the questions. The basic concept is, as you told, uh, language and communication, especially in our context, it's the uh, genetic code and how this is the first point. And the second is how cells of an organism or single cell organisms also coordinate their behavior to get a common, to reach a common goal. So, and my approach uh, shows and represents a solution on these questions that uh, cells communicate and exchange information and therefore are able to coordinate their behavior or bacteria or if they are eukaryotes with multicellular organisms with organs and tissues, so they have to communicate very specific to get best response for an input, how to react accordingly. Okay, so getting into the questions, because you're going to be a part of this virus book I'm putting together, do you think viruses are alive, and if so, can they communicate with one another? Uh, Definitely, yes. Uh, Viruses are for me, are alive because they depend on a genetic code and uh, no natural code codes itself. And as no natural language speaks itself, you always need a biotic uh, agent which is competent to use this code. And from my perspective, the genetic code has editors. And uh, in my perspective, viruses and relatives such as transposable elements are the agents that edit the code of host organisms. So definitely uh, viruses are alive from my perspective and also within viral communities, they cooperate, they compete all naturally, but they cooperate uh, to reach their goals such as uh, infecting viruses and 
They, in many cases, they have helper viruses. So together they can invade a host organism and also competing ones. Uh, so viruses are not alone if they infect the host. They are also competing viruses which want to infect the same host. And they have to search interaction, interactional patterns to reach their goal. So all these uh, kinds show clear abiotic behavior in contrast to abiotic molecules which cannot communicate. What do you think is the dividing line between you know, biology and non-biology uh, at a molecular the, level? Yes, this is uh, clear. We have uh, current investigations which show that RNAs and RNA stem loops, if they are in, in a small, a single RNA stem loop, uh, clearly shows only chemical, physical, interactional patterns. Nothing else than other molecules on an apiotic planet. But we uh, have uh, many studies, meanwhile, which show that if RNA stem loop groups have a critical mass, biological selection starts. So if there are many RNA stem loops, they interact in a way which cannot be found on abiotic planets. Therefore, order between non-living molecules and living molecules is the use of biotic behavior like biological selection, cooperation, competition. Okay, so when I ask, um, you know, why do some viruses uh, have a latent, well, why do viruses seem to have a latency period? They go inside a host. Um, they may not cause the host to be sick for days, weeks, months, years. You know, why would there be a latency period? What do you think is happening? And is there communication going on to say, we're ready, we're not ready? Yes, this is also a clear answer. We must think, first of all, we must think on this planet as a planet of viruses. We have in one drop of seawater, 10 million viruses. So if you look at the whole sea on the planet Earth, there is an abundance of viruses, um, much more than stars in the universe. And in this sea of viruses, also in the soil, is a similar concentration. Uh, if you look at this planet as a planet of viruses, then the cellular organisms, bacteria, archaea, protozoa, fungi, plants, animals, are rare islands in this sea of viruses. So viruses are affecting organisms, every organism since the start of life in many ways. And uh, most of them infect their host, the cellular organism, in a persistent way. So they don't kill the host, but they try to invade the genome of the host or the cytoplasma and remain there in a latent, or I would say in a persistent way, because the host cares for replication also of the latent virus. So if we look at the genome of humans, we have more than 20,000 parts of the genome which derived from 
former viral infections. And the host now can use part of these persistent viruses, which we call defectives, and we know as mobile genetic elements for their own needs. The cellular organism can adapt to changing circumstances in the environment because he has a dynamic genome which can change, which can adapt to changing circumstances by what he got by the persistent viruses. So the cellular organisms which replicate, which have an immune system, which transcribe in every moment for producing proteins for several reasons, they can do this only because of the persistent viruses or the defectives which remained by these viruses. So a cellular organism, his tissue and organs is determined more or less by the persistent invaders which help the cellular organism to adapt to environmental circumstances. So um, for a virus, um, you know, when they're in the virion stage, they appear to be just immobile, you know, free floating and not doing much. I guess just like the seed of a, you know, of a, of a tree. Um, but once they're inside a cell, they they do quite a lot. Um, do you believe that viruses are alive the whole time? They're just in a maybe in a hibernation type stage when they're not inside a cell, and then once they're inside one, then they're active. Or do you think that even in the virion stage, they're they're active somehow? They're sensing. They're you know, they're doing something. The sensing of viruses is without no mm -hmm. doubt. They are very sensitive if in a non-infective state also. But first of all, they search for hosts, for cellular hosts where they can invade because uh, they are so much and so abundant on this planet that the rare resource are cellular organisms. So they have to find and to invade constantly since the beginning of life in evolution four billion years ago every cell is affected by viruses. But cellular organisms have immune system, but where does this immune system come from? The immune system of cellular organisms are the results of persistent invading viruses. They are inserted, and if they are inserted in a non-lytic way in the genome of a cellular organism, they defend the cellular organism against related genetic parasites. This is the real soul of immune systems. Immune systems uh, do not derive from chance mutations also, or something like that, but they are incorporated parts of former viral infections that now protect the host against related genetic parasites. Do you think the viruses are a, a critical part of an organism's immune system? The immune system of cellular organisms derived from many, many persistent invading viruses. And there is also, and the immune system together, this is a clear point which must be outlined. So how can a persistent virus 
contribute to the immune system of a host. This is not only the invading parasite, but if you imagine two competing genetic parasites, which want to invade a host organism, they have to fight the present immune system of the host. And so no one of the invading parasite can be successful because the competing parasite also wants to invade the cellular host organism. And in most cases, the immune system finds a way to integrate both so that counter-regulate each other mm. within the host now. And this counter-regulation is stable in the most cases and is integrated in the host genomes of all living organisms. But if certain circumstances occur, then this balance can get out of control. And one of the persistent virus, viral species can get dominant again and the other is too weak and may kill the host even. Or a disease can be the result also. Think on herpes, a virus on the uh, skin of humans, maybe. Yes, the herpes is integrated in 90% of the human uh, population on this planet in a moderate way. Nobody has uh, bad uh, experiences or damages or diseases. But if this person gets stress, then this balance can get out of control and you have a blaster on the skin or, or even worse uh, diseases from this herpes virus because it's out of control. So this is a counterbalancing and you must think on the genome as the habitat of thousands and thousands of persistent viruses, which are constant counter-regulating each other. And if uh, oh. this gets out of control, then the uh, form, the regulated persistent virus can out of control and cause disease again. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. If a virus endogenizes into, you know, let's say our DNA, at what point does it still preserve its agency? You know, like I know in, in HIV, yes. it's a retrovirus that endogenizes, but then it still instructs the cell to make virions, you know, and yes. it can still persist. Yes. Other viruses, you know, have endogenized and lost their ability to replicate and seem to be a part of us. And now the cell uses them as tools. It's just part of the cellular makeup. Where is that dividing line, you think, for when a virus, again, endogenizes? When does it maintain its agency? When does it not? You know, is there any examples you know of where viruses have been reactivated after they've been endogenized and de-endogenized? Oh, yes, there's a good example. It's the placenta. Evolution of placental mammals was affected by endogenous retroviruses. So they care for uh, genes which we term syncytine, and the syncytine is a merging uh, pr protein which cares that the immune system of the mother does not destroy the embryo 
because the embryo is uh, detected by the immune system of the mother as foreign DNA and would be damaged and, and lost. But the Syncytin genes care that the immune system of the mother cannot detect the embryo as a foreign DNA. And so the embryo may develop in a certain stage when it is strong enough to survive. And then the transcription and translation of the Syncytin gene again is stopped and the embryo can develop and grow within the mother without being damaged by the mother immune system. And these syncytin gains are clearly derived from retroviral infection events uh, when the evolution of placental mammal started. So this is the example where a persistent virus cares for the growth and development of placental mammals. I can see that viruses use cells as tools. You know, they can co-opt cellular machinery to their own ends. But I, I can see, also see like bacteria will, you know, use CRISPR-Cas9 and snip off pieces of viruses and use them for their own immunity and use them for, you know, I've, I've heard an example of a, of a bacteria uh, taking viral DNA and expressing its own spike proteins in, on its membrane and poking holes in other bacteria. It's weird. Um, viruses are information. They are communication. They are tools, but they also can use as tools. What, what do you think governs governs this? Who uses who? This is a good example you you took with bacteria. So we have an incredible number of bacteria on this planet, and most uh, bacteria in the host in their genome, uh, for example, the toxin and antitoxin. The toxin uh, gene would kill the bacteria, but the antitoxin counterbalances the toxin gene. So the bacteria himself is will won't die because of this counterbalancing of the toxin and antitoxin. But if this bacteria invades another organism, a plant, a fungi, or an animal, which has this protection of toxin and antitoxin does not have this uh, protection of toxin and antitoxin at the same time, then this bacteria may become very dangerous for the organism which is infected by the bacteria. But where does this come? Where does the toxin and antitoxin come? And the toxin and the antitoxin clearly represents both is one virus which invaded the bacteria and another viruses which also invaded the bacteria. They were competing viruses which invaded the bacteria and the bacteria found a way to counterbalance this and integrate both the toxin and the antitoxin. And so the bacteria has an innate immune system by the toxin and the antitoxin, which uh, cares that the bacteria will not die, but the bacteria which invades another organism, uh, the other organism don't have this counterbalanced protection of toxin and antitoxin and will get much problems by toxic bacteria because one of the toxin may be very harmful to those. So these are the, all the problems of uh, organisms with bacterial infection, 
derived from their viral inhabitants of the bacteria, which are persistent in this bacteria. And the bacteria don't uh, have only one toxin and an antitoxin. We know bacteria that they have 50 different toxin antitoxin modules, which derive from uh, various evolutionary stages in the development of the bacteria. So this is a very complicated counter-regulation mechanism in the bacteria. And it's not only toxin and antitoxin, it's also insertion dilation modules, which are also present in the bacteria. So dangerous bacteria for cellular organisms like fungi, plants, or animals derive these uh, dangerous capabilities of bacteria derived from uh, their persistent viruses, which are invaded bacterial species and remain there as persistent settlers. So again, communication itself amongst you know biological entities, I guess it seems to require a substrate, but the substrate itself can be a biological entity. That's what I'm asking you about viruses. Do you think that both can hold true for them, that they are communication and that they also communicate? So uh, for communication, you need, you need some signs. And the communication between cellular organisms or plants, fungi, animals, or so on, uh, they produce uh, signaling molecules in an abundant way uh, to reach their goals. So plants uh, in the root zone of plants, they have to produce and send molecules, signaling molecules, also to the bacteria in the root zone and to the fungi in the root zone. And the fungi in the root zone of the plants communicate by emitting uh, signaling molecules to the bacteria. And so they get an equilibrium where they can uh, support uh, the plant root to grow and develop. And this may get out of control by some other bacterial species which are not communicating, but they, we term them as cheetahs. They produce signaling molecules which disturb this communication between fungi, bacteria, and plant root cells. And we have found that plants may disturb this cheating bacterial species so that the normal communication can go away, go on, that the plant can grow and prosper and develop. So plants uh, not only use communication to, in a good way, but also to destroy the communication pathways of bacteria, which disturb the communication which plant needs uh, to get the soluble nutrients which fungi and bacteria in the root zone produce. So, okay, I, I see these examples that there's tons of communication going on, you know, in and amongst and around plants and fungi. And so a, a related question would be, let's say in our bodies, you know, we've got our somatic cells, we've got fungi, we've got, you know, our virome, we have our microbiome of bacteria and on and on. Do you think they're all communicating with one another or do you think there are hubs of communication? You know, everything communicates with bacteria, but, you know, our somatic cells don't communicate with our virome, for instance, or we don't communicate with phages that affect bacteria only. What do you think communication goes amongst all players? I can't imagine a coordinated behavior 
of uh, cellular organisms without communication? How should this function? You have to coordinate, example, in a tissue, in the liver, or in the stomach, or in the, in the gut. The cells uh, have to coordinate if uh, to do a tissue-specific behavior. This coordination depends on a good functioning communication. If the communication is disturbed by uh, whatever circumstances, then the result will be a disease of the organism. So if the communication function, the organism will grow and prosper. And if the communication is damaged or deformed by several circumstances, then disease will be the result. Oh, so you think that this communication must be going on amongst all uh, constituents at all times? Con Otherwise, con be constant, it's a constant communication process, uh, which is never sleeping, which may be more silent and uh, or less active, but it's a constant communication between all cells of an organism, within the cells, between the cells, between the tissues and between the organs. Hmm, okay, that makes sense. Interesting. Has anyone figured out uh, the senome of a cell or a bacteria or a virus or a, a fungi? You know, um, meaning you know we have sight, smell, taste, touch, etc. Has anyone figured out what the what the sensory apparatus is of of a cellular being? You know, maybe they can sense uh, minute chemical gradient changes or the vibrational, you know, the vibration frequency of bonds of molecules. I don't know. I mean, has anyone contemplated this? Yes, this is interesting. I, again, I take the example of plants. They are constantly sensing their surroundings and monitoring what circumstances are uh, presently available to get their nutrients, to get their light, to react accordingly to gravity uh, or dryness or too much water. So uh, we know now that um, plants can also memorize what they got in earlier years at the same time like spring or autumn. Is the water enough? How to develop in these phases of the of autumn or spring or summer or winter where they are nearly sleeping and are very reduced in, in growth and development. And, and all this uh, sensing and constant sensing and monitoring of the environment, we must dis uh, differentiate between abiotic influences like light and gravity or wind, uh, which the plant has to react accordingly which means he has to send messages to the root zone to produce those uh, molecules which uh, help the plant to develop uh, leaves or to get enough light. And then they have to communicate within the plant organism the stem, you know, they have to transport a lot of water up and down and the enormous pressure of the water in, in, in high trees is an enormous problem. Then they have to defend against enemies, pests and juries 
of uh, animals which uh, are eating the leaves. We know uh, the plants produce then volatile molecules which are set out in the environment and warn the neighboring plants uh, and the neighboring plants which are not attacked by pests and, and animals then produce substances in the leaves which don't taste very good for the attacking animal. So uh, they, this is a social behavior between plants. This is not only plants, but also fungi and bacteria have similar interactional motives to coordinate their behavior, to warn the neighborings if they are attacked by certain enemies and to find and to attract helpers. So especially in plants and flowering plants, we need the symbiotic organisms or insects which help the plant to be polluted and uh, to produce uh, fruits. So this is a very important symbiotic uh, relationship and without symbiotic partners, an organism has no chance to survive. Think on our gut and on our microbiome, which are billions and billions of bacteria help us to digest what we eat. And if the bacterial microbiome in our gut has some problems or some communication problems, then we mention this because we have problems with our gut and maybe big problems also. Do you think, um, I mean, even unicellular organisms, at least bacteria, will form into biofilms and they have coordinate action? But do you think that um, even in single cell organisms that there is a, um, a microbiome or there are uh, these partnerships that we just can't see? I think in uh, single-celled organisms like protozoa, first they are infected by a, a lot of persistent viruses, which uh, gave the single-celled protozoa their innate immune system. This is the first one. The next one is that uh, single-celled organisms, I'm sure that they depend on symbionts or symbiotic partnerships or I will give you an example. Corals, these sessile animals in the seas, they have now a problem with coral bleaching because of climate change too hot and also of pollution in the water and too much nutrients which they can't uh, digest. But why is the coral bleaching? The corals have a symbiont, a single cell symbiont integrated in within their tissue and if this symbiont which cares for oxygen and, and energy for the coral organism is spelled out by the organism by the coral the coral can't survive it depends crucially from this uh, single cell symbiont within the coral tissue the researchers have found that Symbiont within the coral tissue, the single cell symbiont within the coral tissue is balanced by some persistent viruses, as I told before, these two competing viruses which are integrated in the single cell protozoa of the coral, which are hosted by the coral. 
So if the water gets warmer because of climate change, this counterbalance between toxin and antitoxin in the symbiont, within the symbiont, gets out of control. And if it gets out of control, toxic component uh, becomes dominant, and the coral now detects his own symbiont, his single-cell symbiont within his tissue as a toxic agent and spells it out. And then the coral can't survive because it depends on this symbiont. But if the symbiont is spelled out because the symbiont gets out of control and becomes a toxic uh, agent, uh, the coral has no chance to survive. So this is a single-celled organism in relation to a multicellular organism and the relation to the uh, viruses which are inhabitants of the single cell organism. Why do you think that some viruses uh, will, you know, be lytic, they'll blow open cells pretty quick and some will be latent, they'll be like symbionts for a long time, and then others will endogenize into the genome of the host? Why do you think there's these differences in behavior? Yeah, uh, the clear difference in behavior is the lytic which can kill the host. And the other is the non-lytic way, the persistent way, which will not kill the host. So the difference maybe depends also on the context where the host organism is involved. So if the host organism has a strong immune system, which is able to uh, regulate the competing genetic parasites within it, then nothing will happen. But if the organism has problems with stress or damage or some bad disease, uh, the inhabitants, the persistent viral inhabitants may get out of control and man may become lytic again. So it depends on the context. It's not a mechanism, but the context in which the living organism is involved. So it depends on it. We have some vir uh, persistent viruses which will not cause diseases because they are so long uh, integrated in the host organism that uh, the counterbalancing uh, mechanism is very strong and confidential, uh, how to say. But others are not very strong counterbalanced. Think on uh, HIV. AIDS virus is dangerous for everything who is affected by it. But some few people are immune with it, uh, against uh, this virus. They don't have any uh, symptoms. And investigations showed that in these few, very few people, the HIV virus has integrated in the host genome and is counter-regulated and will not harm this host. But if the host, which this host, which has no symptoms and will not become disease, will not become because he, his immune system is counter-regulating the infective agent, will have sexual contact to another person which don't have integrated this in a persistent way, the others, other person will become uh, infected and may die. This is yeah. the example for how it may develop over a long time in the next hundred or thousand years that many, many people will be immune against HIV. 
virus in this way more and more. But if they have contact, sexual contact with people who have not integrated this in a persistent way, it will be as dangerous as today. Is this? I guess this is literally like um, what does not kill you makes you stronger or contributes to... Yes, to this, is like a, this is uh, correct, yes. So what do you think would happen if, um, if I'm infected with a virus and I'm number one, I'm the first one that gets it, and then I spread it to someone else, and they're number two, and I spread it to someone else, they're number three, and people keep spreading it to one another, and you get to person 100 in this ch- chain of infection that's passage through 100 different people. How do you think a given virus may change with that many passaging events? Your viruses, if you look at the genomes of viruses, uh, the, the mainstream says they are, especially in the RNA viruses and retroviruses, which are also RNA viruses, they have a lot of mutations. And this is, the, from my perspective, the wrong uh, approach because mutations need uh, error replications. Mutation is defined by a replication which has an error to the master copy. And I don't think this is the correct description. This is from the last century, from the mechanistic and reductionistic paradigm where viruses viewed as poor molecules. And if they replicate, they have to produce a one-to-one copy then it's okay if the copy is slightly different to the master copy, then it's a mutation, which means it's an error replication. But from my perspective, this is rubbish because if we look at these RNA viruses at the stem loops, they're a group of RNA stem loops, they constantly produce new sequences. They produce new bulges, which are single-stranded RNA loops, which uh, open the possibility to connect to other single loops of other RNA networks. And this is uh, a very creative moment because they can invade new organisms. They can produce new capabilities and give it to the host which uh, enables the host to adapt better to circumstances of the changing environments. So the innovation, and I would term it uh, innovation competence of RNA stem loops, cares that the evolution of organisms on this planet can go on and uh, they may adapt to changing environmental circumstances. And this innovation competence, clearly a complete other narrative than error replication. So if a a poet, this is an anthropomorphic view now, but if you think on a poet who has his first poem and from the words he used in his first poem, he makes a second poem. This is not an error. This is creation. This is innovation and not the error replication. So, and like this, the masters of the genetic material, the viruses and viral derived uh, relatives, this uh, is creating innovation, changeability, 
adaptation, all these circumstances and all these capabilities, I can't uh, explain by errors. Errors uh, yeah, yeah. is the wrong description from the last century. So would you call this deliberate adaptation? Is that a better way to describe it? Adaptation is the result, but the capability of these agents is innovation. So if uh, uh, an RNA virus produces a lot of uh, various uh, species out of a master copy, this is uh, really uh, innovation and creation of new sequences and new sequence order and a lot of new sequences which can then be transmitted to the infected host and help this host to co-adapt or to accept for the cellular needs. So the, this is the innovation production by RNAs and viruses which help the host infected host organisms to constantly adapt to changing environmental circumstances. Do you see that very many scientists, I don't know, are they taking on these ideas? Are they resisting them? Do you see that things are changing slowly? Like overall, do most people reject what you're saying? Or do you think that it's, it's getting there? The perception is evolving of what's possible. When I in introduced my concept in the year 2000, life, the communicative structure, uh, most people rejected this. But uh, then I developed this issue and in, from 2010 to 2020, I edited 10 books at Springer about the communication of viruses, bacteria, protozoa, fungi, plants, and a lot of animals. And I assembled nearly 500 leading experts in their field, which contributed to my book. And the downloads of the single chapters of the book in, in, within the last 10 years was 230,000 downloads. So meanwhile, I think Jeez. most people acknowledge that uh, without communication, cellular organisms can't coordinate, and uh, also that uh, viruses are the dominant species on this planet, uh, which uh, create and help cellular life to adapt, to further evolve in new organisms, in new tissues, in new organs, and which all communicate together to coordinate their behavior. That last question for you, what do you think came first? Like, how do you think life started? Did it start with viruses or cellular forms first? Which one? Uh, at the current stage, uh, we have strong reasons to see that first there were uh, RNA world without cellular organisms. So RNAs, which uh, was in the oceans in an abundant mass of uh, RNAs, which uh, cooperated and formed uh, networks of various forms. We have one uh, virus which has nothing else as his RNA sequence. These are the vi viroids of plants, uh, plant viruses, especially plant virus. Here can, we can look in the, in the past. So also the poor sequence, RNA sequence is able to interact with the host organism or 
within a group of uh, RNA network. So when then later on cells started, so how did cells start? Uh, maybe uh, you need a membrane because a single cell without the membrane will not survive. So we have a membrane. Uh, now current investigations show that viruses produce some protein membranes and it is uh, thinkable that uh, in some environmental circumstances, uh, maybe in the soil, maybe in uh, in the sea, deep sea, there are compartmentalization. So if you have uh, compartmentalized regions where these RNA groups isolated and they have a protection from protein around them produced by viruses, then this could be the start of the first cells. But and together with viruses, I don't think that uh, viruses came before cellular organisms, but a cellular org the evolution of the first cellular organisms without viruses is unthinkable. So they are in a parallel way, they found a way to create cellular life together with viruses based on RNA networks. Well, very good. Gunther, thank you for coming. And what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Should they get your book or what's best? Look on my website, we, we, so, uh, wbiocommunication.at. Okay. Very simple. There are all my books and all my articles and uh, a short and understandable description of what I am doing and read my research. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.